Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to announce that the eight-week online Transcend course is back. Become certified in learning the latest science of human potential and learn how to live a more fulfilling, meaningful, creative, and self-actualized life. The new cohort starts on June 25th and will include more than 10 hours of recorded lectures, four live group Q&A sessions with me, four small group sessions with our world-class faculty, a plethora of resources and articles to support your learning, and an exclusive workbook of growth challenges that will help you overcome your deepest fears and grow as a whole person. There are even some personalized self-actualization coaching spots available with our world-class faculty as an add-on. I'm happy to announce that just for Psychology Podcast listeners, you can get 20% off the course by going to transcendcourse.com and entering psychpodcast in the coupon box. We will be closing registration soon, so I suggest signing up as soon as possible. We have so much fun in this course, and you will receive a lot of support along your self-actualization journey. Just go to transcendcourse.com to register and enter P-S-Y-C-H-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, Psych Podcast, in the coupon box. I look forward to welcoming you to the Transcender community. It talks about going from that awareness to a vast emptiness to an ultimate unity or oneness with everything. And that's a waking up experience. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome Ken Wilber to the show. Ken Wilber is the legendary developer of Integral Theory. He's also the founder of the Integral Institute, which was formed in collaboration with over 200 scholars and experts, specializing in education, politics, business, medicine, psychology, spirituality, law, and criminal justice. His 25 books have been translated into 30 foreign languages, making Ken one of the most widely translated academic writers in America. At age 74, he is still very much active as a philosopher, author, and teacher, with all of his major publications still in print. In this episode, I talked to Ken Wilbur about his integral theory. Instead of trying to tackle it all in its complexity, Ken hones in on the application of his theory to intelligence, consciousness, and transcendence. He believes that development in these areas follows a predictable path, such as in the case of enlightenment. 
Borrowing from Zen Buddhism, Ken talks about what it's like to awaken to the truth of reality. We also touch on the topics of psychological research, diversity, artificial intelligence, social media, and of course, we talked about Abraham Maslow. So without further ado, I bring you Ken Wilbur. Hey, Ken Wilbur, it is such an honor to chat with you today. It's been a long time coming. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you. I just want to start off by asking, how are you doing? Like, how are you uh, doing? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Good, good. I mean, there's such a huge wealth of information that you've put out into the world throughout your course of your whole lifetime. Right. What are some of the some of the things that some of the applications of integral theory that that most excite you these days? Well, I appreciate the developmental component a lot and the fact that everybody is going through a certain stage of development in one or more of their multiple intelligences. And so the number of multiple intelligences a person has, uh, it varies from theorist to theorist. Most give around eight or so multiple intelligences, some nine or 10, but they're all important. I mean, we have not only a cognitive intelligence, we have an emotional intelligence, a moral intelligence, an aesthetic intelligence, an interpersonal intelligence, a spiritual intelligence, and so on. And for each of those intelligences, we're going through a given number of around eight or so stages of development. And that's a very important piece of information because not only can you identify different multiple intelligences that you have, you can recognize that each of them will be coming from essentially the same level of development, although they go through it at different speeds and at different times and so on. But that's an important piece of information to know and understand. And I, it's one of the favorite aspects that I have um, for integral theory. So I appreciate that. Now also, we have different states of consciousness. Mm. Commonly, they're waking, dreaming, deep sleep. And then one called Turiya, which is a transcendental self-awareness. It's just your awareness of your independent individual self right now. There's a huge witness that's witnessing yourself. And so when you look within and see yourself, you're in touch with the witness experience. And that witness is actually your true self or Turia or your real self or your big self. And that witness is also one with everything you're witnessing right now, which is called the state of Turiatida, which basically means beyond Turia or beyond identifying with this witness. You, you can notice that everything that you're aware of right now is actually existing, coming from a state that Douglas Harding called our headless condition. 
And what headless means is if you look, you can see every part of your body except your head. And you can't see your head. You're headless. Mm -hmm. What you see when you look out of your two eyes is you can see two sort of fleshy blobs on each side of your awareness. But then there's a whole world of objects that seem to be arising out there. But they're not really arising out there. They're arising right one with your own awareness. So they're sitting right where you thought your head was is an objective world arising out there. But it's not arising out there. It's arising right here, right where I thought my head used to be. So I really am headless, except I'm one with everything that's arising in my headless space. Okay, let's take a pause for a second. It, within the span of three minutes, you you seamlessly rode between the multiple intelligences to the right. self to um, the being one with everything. I, there are so many juicy, juicy threads. Can we start with sure. intelligence? Because I've spent my whole career studying intelligence and studying G or general intelligence. Sure. Do you think, I have two questions relating to intelligence. One, do you think we society overvalues certain forms? Which ones do you think society overvalues and which ones do you think society undervalues, especially in education? And the second question is, do you see any value to general intelligence? Do you even believe there is such a thing? So there's two questions if we, if we double click on intelligence for a second. Yeah. So which ones do I think we over emphasize? Yeah. I think we definitely give a fair amount of attention to cognitive intelligence. Mm. And so that's whether it's an actual field like mathematics or some form of intelligence very specific like that. But in general, we give a great deal of attention to whatever cognitive awareness we have. And not as much attention to like emotional intelligence or spiritual intelligence or even aesthetic intelligence. Mm, yeah. Although there are specific disciplines for each of those. Mm. And of course, if we sign up to one of those classes, we'll get a fair amount of attention paid to that intelligence. It might be our moral intelligence or our aesthetic intelligence or even our emotional intelligence. And what was your second question? I didn't understand it when you first said it. Sure. It was about general intelligence, but let's close the okay. thread on the first, the first thing first, the idea of multiple intelligences and then I know you've been particularly interested in spiritual intelligence and have yeah. written beautifully about it and have delineated many different subcomponents of spiritual intelligence. And you've argued that some subcomponents are more evolved, so to speak, or higher order than others. And I heard right. in one of your talks, you said that unfortunately, the more lower order ones are the most prevalent ones, <laughs> and the more higher order ones are the least prevalent. Let's even go zoom in further on spiritual intelligence for a second. Tell me some sure. of the ones you think are some higher uh, than others. Yeah, well, first of all, I talk about two different types of spiritual intelligence. One involves states of consciousness, 
and one involves structures mm. or specific stages of consciousness. And the stages is one that goes through the relative overall structures of growing up or development in general. So they'll go from archaic stage to pre-operational stage to concrete operational to formal operational to integral stages of development. And each of those, of course, have a different worldview, a different view of the world. And when it comes to the line of spiritual intelligence, as it goes through those stages, they're often referred to in Gene Gepser's terms as archaic stage, magic stage, mythic stage, rational right. stage, and right. integral stage. And those are each very real components. There's a spiritual worldview from each one of those levels, and it does include an understanding of the interwoven nature of all reality and the oneness of all reality. And you can directly experience that oneness in a state of consciousness, not just a structure stage of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So most structure stages use uh, something like Piaget's cognitive stage. Right. And so they are pre-operational, concrete operational, formal operational, and so on. And the states of spiritual awareness at the magic stage, you're simply, if you have a spiritual experience of magical and you become one with the magical world, what you tend to believe is that this oneness with everything that you're aware of is indeed has a magical quality to it. You feel that you're one with something that's arising because your subject of awareness is one with the mental worldview that's arising. And so to change objective component of the worldview is to actually change your subjective awareness of it as well. And that's what magic means, basically. So if I change my worldview of an object and it goes from magical oneness to a mythic oneness in the world that's arising does appear to be mythic in nature and so it might be an actual mythic story or fairy tale or some greek mythology or something along those lines and then we have a rational stage of development and that's a third person awareness Magic is always first or second person, and mythic is usually second person. And then as we move into formal operational, we move into mathematical capacities mm -hmm. and a definite third person awareness. Mm -hmm. So a him or her or they or them or it or its. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a very real reality and if we 
change our third person representation, then we'll change the way we relate to those third person objects, to he or him or they or them. Even if I refer to you as he or him or part of us or a part of a them relationship, then that is different than if I talk to you by using your first person name or if I refer to you as a second person. So I'll say, oh, that squad cast is being done by him. Right. Uh, and not use your name or not well, refer to you. Does this, uh, is Martin Buber's work relevant here at all in the I thou relationship versus it, it relationships? It, Martin Buber's sort of delineation of different kinds of relationships. and Well, an I thou yeah. relationship, as Buber used it, yeah. was a very profound spiritual experience. Yeah. So it's a direct and immediate experience of being one with an everlasting or transcendental sense of selfhood. Yeah. Or, and that was the thou, capital T. Yeah. So we have an I-thou relationship with that ultimate reality. And that's a very profound experiential experience. Yeah, yeah. And so, we can have it with trees. We can have it with things in nature. Yeah. We argued. Yeah. Yeah. Not just people. Basically. But it, it does have a sense that you're actually talking or experiencing a real person, mm. which is why it's an I-thou right. relationship. And that thou is a very real consciousness. It's a very real awareness it's a very real experiential reality and i will experience that thou much as i'm experiencing you as the thou right now and so that's why buber selected those terms because it's just almost like you're talking to god yeah when you have an i thou experience and in a certain sense you are Oh boy, <laughs> we could double click on that. Yeah. It just dawned on me that a lot of what you're saying uh, connects to some of the things that Buber said. How much were you influenced by Abraham Maslow? I'm just curious because he's uh, been a huge influence on my own career and work. I'm pausing because I've been experienced by so many modern day developmental psychologists. Yeah. And Abe Maslow was certainly one of them. I think that his system of developmental needs is a fairly good system. If you look in integral psychology, I include charts in the back of that book that refer to over a hundred developmental psychologists. And I have charts of all of the stages of development that they've given. And almost all of the structures the actual ones that have stages that are real structures that can usually be stated as a first person or a second person or a third person structure that they're referring to. Almost all of those go through the same basic levels of development. And that includes Maslow's. 
So you go from physiological to safety to mythic realities and then self-actualization and ultimately a self-transcendence and then an ultimate unifying stage. Uh, And I think those are all fairly real stages and they do correspond to these major stages that all 100 of these developmental models accurately reflect, but from a different perspective and a different person perspective of development and so on. But those are all very real and very important aspects of our own being. Mm. And I've really appreciated that part of the integral framework the developmental component. And I've gotten a lot of those, or I've gotten almost all of those structure stages from various modern day developmental psychologists. And that includes Abe Maslow. Mm. So he's an important, and because his model is so well known, it was a fairly important influence on me. Wonderful. Yeah. And the whole way he discusses the arising of these basic needs of development was also very important for me. And basically, you have to have one stage emerge and be fairly well existing before the next stage will automatically start to emerge. I would argue that's a misunderstanding of Maslow's work. Do you know that he never drew a pyramid? Not many people know this, but he never actually drew the pyramid <laughs> that has been right. so uh, used in, in textbooks and things. And yeah, he, he always he really emphasized the being realm versus the deficiency realm. And I, and I think what went to great pains to argue that uh, we target multiple needs simultaneously. That it's not life's not like a video game where you have to reach a certain level before you're allowed to get unlock the next level. I wanted to have a discussion with you about if you see any limitations to stage theories of development because I've been a little critical of stage theories. I have like the sailboat model where I like to think about it as an integrated harmony of of pieces as opposed to stages. I actually think that a integrated sailboat model is more in line with integral theory than stage theories. So I'm actually surprised that you embrace stage theories. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Yeah, and it's stage theory versus what? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. That's a good question. What is the alternative? Um, yeah. As I view it, so for instance, if I'm, if I'm thinking of like an operating unit, like a sailboat and, and various different needs that must be met, they all have to work together as a unifying piece. It doesn't make right. sense to talk about, about uh, levels. In, right. in that kind of situation. It's more about harmony among parts. Right. So I actually, just wondering if you see some limitations to stage theories, because I've been a little bit critical that, that that's the way, that's how we should think about self-actualization as stages. Right. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, what stage theory is talking about in particular that has some merit hmm. is when it's talking about the components of a stage what actually the stage is made of. Mm. And sometimes 
the stage is made of components from a previous stage. That's right. That's yeah. That's transcendence. And so you're not going to get that stage to emerge until that previous state has emerged, like first person, second person, and third person. They do emerge in our awareness in that order. Mm. And we don't have a third person without having a second person and a first person. And so that doesn't mean that all developmental sequences have to go through those stages. But to the extent that they do, to the extent that you actually spot a third person stage of mathematical development, there has to be a second person that's part of that third person. And of course, there has to be a first person that's aware of the second person and the third person. And those are, they, of course, can occur simultaneously, but we have to have a first person before we have a second person. And we have to have a second person before we have the third person. It's a very good point. And that's because each of those is made of its previous stage of development. Like Russian nesting dolls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really important point, but that point is often overlooked in, in, in discussions of stage theories. So I'm glad that we're, we're really highlighting this because it's right. about transcendence is about including. <laughs> right. It's not about excluding. Uh, I think some yeah. people think of transcendence as, oh, I'm just going to transcend my ego, as though the ego is going to magically be gone. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, that doesn't work at all. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Try that. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work. And that's where stage theory does tend to have an important application. I mean, things like mathematics itself mm. have stages of increasing complexity. So you go from arithmetic to algebra with a variable X, and you can then go on to like calculus and so on. And there are different schools, different types of mathematics that develop at more complex stages of awareness. And that's an important aspect uh, as well. That doesn't mean that we have to completely do all of one stage of mathematics before we can be aware of another stage. And once they're sort of all flowing, you can be aware of, of all of them simultaneously if you want to be. So Absolutely. that's not, um, a major issue. But the ways that like, you're not going to be aware of what a third person consciousness is, what it feels like if you don't have a first person. And you generally need a second person. That's in an understanding that there is not only an I, there's a you, there's a thou. Yeah. And then not only that, but we can have a him or a her or yes. a they or a them. And so those are fairly important. And particularly, I mean, that's the way grammar is outlined and the different forms of I, thou, and him, her are unfolded and outlined. 
and they're fairly significant. Hmm. So that's just part of uh, an overall integral approach is well, when we can include all of those first, second, and third person stages of development in every multiple intelligence that we have. Wow. And that's usually, it comes as a bit of a surprise to most people mm. to learn that they do have available general stages of development. Yeah. And they started out as a first person kid, just aware of their own awareness. And then they became aware of their mother, their father, siblings, or some second person that they were directly talking to and a stream of exchange where they would take the other person's perspective and then they would go back to their own perspective and so on. And then they would understand that there's a third person perspective that I don't have to be talking to you in order for you to exist because you can just be that person over there, that third person, him or her, it or they or them. But when people realize that they have first person, like Maslow's stages of development is one example, or Jane Lovinger's or Robert Keegan, they're often surprised to find that those stages have been named and that they can recognize them if they look within, generally speaking. So that becomes very interesting. And as I say, it's a novel experience for most people. If they read Jane Lovinger's stages of ego development, for example, and they'll see it going from very interior, infantile, just first-person stages of development to a full you development to a they or them development. They're interested to find that they have those stages in themselves that are arising. And I, I think it's a very interesting component of integral theory overall. And so I spend a fair amount of time when I talk about the magic stage or the mythic stage or the rational stage, the formal operational stage, or the integrative stage of development. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of people are very interested in, in finding that out. Yeah. And you're obviously a legend <laughs> when it comes to integrating stage theories. I mean, it's the amount of work and thought you've put into it is hard to surpass. But I, I do want to get your, your thinking about something and uh, let this be a, a conversation between us. You know, there's different forms of transcendence. There's uh, vertical and horizontal forms. I've been trying to emphasize in my own research horizontal, like what Maslow called uh, synergy, which is a right. concept he took from, you know, the anthropologist, I believe, uh, Ruth Benedict, the idea of synergy, that what's automatically good for me is good for me is automatically good for the world. So there's like, it's a huge integration between self and world, as opposed to a vertical form of transcendence where you can fall prey to, I think, spiritual narcissism and this, what psychologists call the I'm enlightened and you're not effect, you know, where you've, you take some sort of meditation retreat and you think that you're 
more enlightened than everyone else and uh, you're better than everyone else, you know? So I just want to get your thoughts on vertical versus horizontal transcendence. What did you call it? So horizontal versus vertical transcendence. It, it seems like your work focuses a lot on vertical. Am I wrong? Because uh, am I wrong about that? Well, it does spend a great deal of time outlining the vertical stages. Yeah. But I recognize horizontal development as well. How can one who reaches one of these higher, some of the highest stages possible, still maintain a real sense of modesty and a lack of narcissism, where they don't think they are somehow better than their fellow humans, even though they have a different sort of way of being in this world? Well, first of all, a person has to know some developmental model to even be aware that if they're on a higher stage, they're actually on a higher stage. Hmm. Most people don't feel these stages. Hmm. They don't feel, oh, I'm at a really low stage of interpersonal yeah. development right know, now. Oh, wait, I just moved up to concrete operational. That's fantastic. I still have a ways to go, but I'm much higher than I used to be. People don't track that. And they certainly don't know when they're at the highest stage of a particular stage model. Mm. Like Lovinger called her highest stage, the integral or integrated stage of development. And this came right after an autonomous stage which came after a formal, operational, uh, authentic stage, and that came after a conformist stage. But when you're at a conformist stage, you don't know you're at a conformist stage. <laughs> so you're not going to feel that much greater when you go post-conventional. So you have to have some sense that you're moving through these stages, and then you don't generally feel superior. That's not the nature of the experience that most people have at different stages of development. Mm. It's not, oh, I'm two-thirds of the way up. I'm better than two-thirds of those people out there are. That just doesn't cross your mind. It, It doesn't come up as an experiential reality Hmm. that, oh, now I'm at a higher stage than somebody else is. I see. It's the, you can think that you're at a higher stage, but you won't necessarily at the same time think higher than that person or higher than those people who aren't at this high stage. That just doesn't come with your awareness that, okay, wait a minute, now I'm on Maslow's self-transcendent stage, mm. or I'm on his self-authentic stage. It, it just doesn't come in that type of experience. Yeah, unfortunately, there, there are many examples, though, of spiritual narcissism, as I'm sure you would agree. Of course. You know, of gurus who think that they are more enlightened, and they use that as justification for exploitation, right? Usually, narcissism goes down with development. You would hope. <laughs> yeah, so, would well, hope. Slowly. Yeah. But yeah. It, it does. 
the higher the stage of development, the less mm. narcissistic it is. Mm. And that's just pretty much all stage models agree with that empirical finding. Now, it is possible that when that you go through different lines of development at different types, at different stages. So somebody can have, it's at least theoretically possible that they could have a spiritual intelligence experience mm. and tag it to their own narcissism. Right. I mean, that's completely possible. But it doesn't occur as a typical condition. So when you have, like, if you're practicing Zen Buddhism and you have your first Satori, mm. you feel fantastic. You feel mm. one everything. And it, it's a great, great feeling. <laughs> and all, but you won't tend to think, oh, I've had a Satori and nobody else here has, or all those people over there haven't had the Satori. Mm. Mm. It, it's just not part of the Satori experience. That's not how and why and what you experience when you experience a Satori. It's discovering mm. your own true Buddha nature, your own true self. And that feels fantastic, uh, obviously. But you don't, therefore, tend to look down on people who haven't had Satori's. I mean, you can. There's nothing preventing you. But it's not described as a typical experience of a Satori. That's not how Satori is defined or described. But can it make you more prone to think that that you know what's best for others, you know, and that like you can dictate to um, to people how they should live their lives. Can't you fall prey? Because we're all human. We're all human. Sure. You know, can't some people fall prey to that, where they kind of think, well, they're they they know what they 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 see great. They think they see great clarity into the right. into the real way. Yeah. Well, that can particularly arise when they can think better than the average or most people. Mm. And that's genuinely reaching some higher aspect of their own awareness. Maybe they understand advanced mathematics, mm. and not very many people do. And if they think about that, they would have the thought, well, I'm more advanced than most people. Yeah. And that would be true if they really were at an advanced stage of mathematical development, for example. But again, I, it's not my understanding nor my experience mm. of people that do like reach great heights of mathematical understanding, that they're always thinking, wow, I've got this great mathematical brain and most nobody else can match it. Yeah. Uh, it, it just doesn't, that's more likely to occur in the earlier stages of development, the developments, the developmentalists actually call narcissistic stage or an ego power stage. And people there often think that they're better 
than a lot of other people. Because that's the nature of that stage. It thinks only that its own ideas are true and important. And that's because it really can't take another person's perspective. So it, you can have like um, a six-year-old mm. who thinks that they're the world's greatest. And they're particularly at the stage of development that Lovinger narcissistic or egoic power. And that's exactly what they're experiencing. Their own ego has an enormous amount of power. And think that way. And so they will sometimes make that comparison with I have more power than you do. Yeah. But can't like stages wax and wane throughout the course of even one's day. I mean, you, you, you talk about stages though. It's like you, you've reached a stage and then you're there and you don't revert back to the old one. Right. I mean, isn't it possible? This is why I have some criticism of stage way of thinking about it because throughout the course of a day, you can have a profoundly narcissistic moment. And then the next moment you could right. think at a higher level. Right. Is that is that right? Like it can it can change. Oh. You know, don't don't you have your narcissistic moments, <laughs> or are you completely over it? No, sure, no, we all do. Yeah. And and that's again, it's not what developmental theory is generally saying. Hmm. It acknowledges, as Maslow does, that these needs can arise multiply. They can right. arise together. They can arise alongside of each other. But there does tend to be a general shift in your center of awareness, your center of gravity, from a lower stage to a higher stage. And if that higher stage does include, as an actual component of its own self-being, that actually includes a previous stage, then that previous stage has to be there in some sense for the higher stage to include it. Yeah. And so that's fairly common. Just yeah. like we have to have a first person awareness and first person words, I, me, mine, before we can be aware of another person, a you, a thou, and so on. I like that. I like I like the way you just framed that in terms of different kinds of awareness. Right. I, I'm getting triggered over the word stage for some reason. I, maybe that's something I need to get over. Maybe I need to get to a higher stage to get over it, that framework way of thinking. But I like the, I like the awareness aspect a lot. Yeah. 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 And I think stages can be very misused. Correct. And yeah. that's yeah. something any sane person mm beyond seven years old yeah. would tend to be able to be aware of that and to agree with that. But stage theories are particularly bad when they refer to themselves as stages. Yeah. And they do understand that there's a higher stage. Yeah. And so somebody like an Adolf Hitler 
is going to be proud and glad to say that, yeah, he's at the highest stage of development. That's right. That's right. Uh, and that's not a good sign. No. It's actually a sign that you're at one of the earliest stages of narcissistic development. Absolutely. I mean, Hitler was not an integral, he wasn't a very integral human being. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. Hey, I really like your distinction between waking up and growing up. Can you um, talk to our audience a little bit about, about what, what your thinking sure. is these days on that? Yeah. I sort of came upon that distinction when I started studying developmental psychology. And it was in my early teenage years, and I was at that time a profound and intense practitioner of Zen Buddhism. So I would meditate daily and all sorts of things like that. Mm. And I had actual Zen teacher and so on. And as I started to, and I knew that Zen had a sort of developmental perspective in what was called the 10 ox herding pictures, mm. which showed 10 broad the overall developmental stages of Zen awareness. And so it goes through these different pictorial representations called the ox herding pictures, where the ox means our large, our big mind, our true mind, mm. and how we first are not aware of it at all, so it just looks like an ordinary world out there. And then we start to become aware of higher states or stages even to the point that we get to the eighth stage, which just shows an empty circle. And when you sit in meditation and you meditate, that's what comes up. Absolutely nothing. There's a vast, formless emptiness to awareness. Mm -hmm. And that's your eighth Zen oxherding picture, because it really is, does feel like a vast, formless emptiness yeah. and nothing arising. And then you get to the 10th Zen ox herding picture, and it's essentially the same as the first ox herding picture, except you've gone through all of these previous stages. And so I always had those stages of development in mind. And when I started actually studying developmental psychology, I naturally would sort of compare their stages that they presented, and all of them presented six, seven, eight, nine or so stages of development. And none of them lined up directly with the 10 oxherding pictures. Mm. There was some sort of different something going on, and I couldn't figure it out. Mm. And what I was looking at, of course, is, was Zen was talking about stages in the waking up process, a process mm. of enlightenment, which is where you come to realize that your real self is not this little self that you think exists behind and between your eyes, someplace in your head looking out at the world, and is separate from everything it sees mm. and is above all of it. It doesn't talk about those, the stages that those that awareness goes through. It talks about going from that awareness mm. to a vast emptiness, 
to an ultimate unity or oneness with everything. Yes. And that's a waking up experience. And <laughs> as you experience some of those like sixth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth stages of the Zen oxygen you'll often feel like you're actually waking up. And that feels just like you've been asleep. And then when you first open your eyes and the world comes in, that's a waking up. And that's what a Zen Satori feels like. Hmm. It feels like, wow, I've been asleep in this waking world for a long period of time. And now I'm actually aware of reality and i happen to be one with that reality let me just take a pause there and link that waking up that let's call it unitive consciousness that unitive consciousness what is the role of um more analytical iq type intelligences for that is it uh, you know or someone i'm returning to my older older question about general intelligence people have argued that there's that iq measures general intelligence but it, to me, it seems like it's not that relevant. It seems like there's plenty of people with sky-high IQ scores who ha do not have unitive consciousness. So I'd love for you to talk to me about this. Yeah. Yeah. There seems to be, first of all, we would say that uh, general intelligence, general IQ intelligence, hmm. really corresponds to a few of our lines of multiple intelligence. And it can just be called that, our general mm. intelligence right. stage of development. And that seems to be a certain minimal achievement in that IQ stream does seem an, a very helpful and in some sense necessary stage of development for a Satori or a waking up experience. Now, you don't have to go off the scale in your IQ. You don't have to be at 140 or 160 to have a Satori. You do have to be at least have some degree of adult growing up. Reason reasoning ability, yeah. Yeah, so mm -hmm. there has to be, like, you have to have at least a concrete operational capacity yeah. in awareness. Yeah. And then if you have a Satori, it's generally a formal operational mm. state that you're mm. coming from. Mm -hmm. But all that's absolutely necessary is to get through concrete operational thinking. And then you can are open to a type of Satori. And the Satori, mm. of course, can itself be fairly small or maybe you experience go from first person of the 10 Zen oxygen pictures to the third person when you have your first Satori. But that can still feel like a genuine awakening that you're seeing stuff that you've never seen before. And that includes some degree of your headless condition of realizing, oh, I'm I don't have a head. My head is one with everything that it's looking at. Do people with intellectual disabilities, are they capable of, of enlightenment at all? People with? Intellectual disabilities. Well, if, if it's severe, 
disabilities, the anxious, not generally, no. Hmm. But if it's a minor problem, or so interesting. They can have some sort of experiential awakening. What is it about? This is so interesting because I'm very interested in neurodiversity, and so I um, I've studied and researched the link between like the schizophrenia spectrum and creativity, for instance. The spectrum, you know, those who aren't hospitalized but score high in psychotic like traits. There's a certain like uh, inverted U-shaped curve. So like there's a maximum right. point where it's maximally conducive to creativity. And then you fall off the cliff and end up in the mental institution if you have too much. But there is there is a certain point where it's good to have schizotypal like traits. Have you heard the phrase schizotypy? Schizotypy, it's like schizotypal. It's like um, it's like a uh, the, the personality dimension of schizophrenia. So all yeah. of us, yeah, yeah. So yeah. um, being uh, you know, having uh, being prone to magical thinking, being prone to uh, unusual ways of thinking of at, sometimes it can cause an uh, affect difference. You know, there, these are these are not things that uh, we would want to psych- psychopathologize, right? These aren't things we want to stick a DSM on. We just say people differ in these traits naturally occurring in the general population. What do you make about these findings that those who score higher on these questionnaires, these schizotypal questionnaires, do tend to score higher in um, in openness to experience and self-transcendent experiences and maybe even experiences of enlightenment? From what I understand of your experience, you're talking about some experiences that could be viewed as very positive, being a part of a schizophrenic personality. Well, we talked about how IQ might relate to some of this, but personality seems to relate to some of this. So I'm trying to think through what are the personality characteristics that kind of predispose you in some way to higher stages of thinking in your model. Yeah. And then you gave some examples? Yeah, for my own research. Yeah, I oh. gave an example of openness to experience and schizotypy, for instance. Yeah. And yeah. what? Schizotypy. Schizotypy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I think there are a whole fairly small but not insignificant number of predisposing factors that can lead one to actually help one to have a Satori okay. experience. And that certainly includes openness. Seems to be a big one. It seems to be a big yeah. one. Yeah. 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 And in the same way that there are a certain number of factors that can prevent one from having a Satori. And we talked about to have at least a certain degree of cognitive intelligence, but you don't have to be anywhere near a genius. That's good news. <laughs> good yeah. news for everyone. A lot of geniuses uh, don't, you know, or you know, intellectual geniuses have have not uh, ex- even experienced some of this. So that seems to be really important. Yeah, I'm I'm super interested in individual differences. That's a large thread of my research. So just trying to connect the individual differences work to to stage right. development, because I think that's a super interesting link. Right. Yeah. yeah. And those are important connections. Those are important traits to track and understand and follow. And I think that's why a few developmental models have 
people get to certain stages of development and they'll seem to have expansive or opening or unitive experiences. Mm. Not everybody, but a, a, a large number larger than at the previous stage or stages of development. Hmm. And so I think that's very interesting. And they generally all tend to occur when that particular developmental model is tracing stages that are about two-thirds of the weight as high as they can go. Hmm. And that just seems to be just a generalized characteristic that you'll notice in a lot of the developmental models. And that's a, always been a very interesting um, experience to me because uh, very few models that I'm aware of, Maslow attracted, actually track the experience of Satori. They don't say, oh, well, let's look for what stage people start to have satori but that's what you do tend to see in some vague undefined way so that's always been interesting to me and it's about two-thirds of the way through their stages that they present could integral theory be falsified scientifically like in what ways have it been, has it been tested because there's so many components to it. It's, it's a lot to, yeah. Yeah, it depends upon whether you're talking about stages themselves, because I think those are constantly being scientifically checked mm. and validated. Because mm. they almost every developmentalist, once they discover their own model with his own stages, mm get empirical evidence from their subjects that they're studying. And so they'll, they're always checking and scientifically testing for the stage of development. And so since I'm simply referring to the subtotal of all of those stage models, yeah. that a particular stage is not going to be generally disproven. But how those models actually fit together, that's something that is open to discussion and dispute. Yeah. So my claim that I give a hundred stage models and that they're all going through the same similar levels of development, that could certainly be discussed and and dismiss it would be a little bit hard because i include so many different models mm. but when at the beginning when i'm putting together three or four or five each way that i would put them together could be disputed and checked and it might be that they just appear to be going through similar stages of development but they're actually not when you look at the real evidence at each stage. But I think because I have myself such a high respect for the scientific method and scientific mm. models of reality, I don't want to present some idea that doesn't have a lot of evidence 
supporting it. Awesome. And so that's why if you want to like go through my claims in integral psychology, you're going to have to look at a hundred developmental models and take evidence from each of them. But that's the whole point. A model got to be included in that hundred models because it supported the general idea that I was presenting. Yeah, I wish there was more research in psychology or interest in modern day psychology on uh, development stages and higher forms of development. Um, it was I'm, bigger in the humanistic psychology era than than this era, yeah, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wish there was too, and I don't really understand why there isn't. Yeah, it's you know, there's been. Uh, yeah, me neither. I mean, I'm interested in it. <laughs> so I'm like, why isn't more people interested in it? I know, I know. Yeah, I don't know. I wish uh, I, knew, I wish I knew the answer. Yeah, evidence that we do have from well-respected and well-accepted models of development. Mm. Mm. Those are looked upon with a fair amount of acceptance, and um, they're sort of happy with what they're showing. So even when Maslow would introduce his needs, Mm. even though there was and continues to be some disagreement about which level there is and what the actual ingredients or the nature of that level is, Mm. and that's completely, I agree with all of the questioning about that aspect of stages. But he had demonstrated so much uh, importance hmm. to those general ideas that he presented that uh, um, he did have a profound impact on psychology. I mean, he founded yeah. two of the four forces. He founded humanistic psychology, and he went on to um, help discover transpersonal mm. psychology. Yeah. And that those were pretty major. Well, I agree. I agree, but I would say neither of them are in are considered part of mainstream psychology uh, right. in, in modern day. Um, if you compare it to the amount of conferences and work being done like cognitive science, for instance, it pales in comparison. So um but uh oh but for sure I mean that was a big my attempt to, to write my book Transcend was to to bring back Maslow and and uh, the science of right. humanism humanistic psychology and transcendence. Right. So I'm with I'm with you. Can we talk about the societal level for a second and um, sure. some of your thoughts about this? Because in some of the work I've read, you seem to suggest that we are progressing to higher levels of society, but I can say that doesn't appear to be the case. <laughs> it seems like society right now is the opposite of the, especially American society. Everything is so polarized on every issue. Isn't that the exact opposite of the spirit of integral theory? <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm not thrilled with the direction. I'm glad you that said that. It's a whole <laughs> to be headed. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you said that. Developing in a regressive, I know. Fashion. And I'm just not that (sighs) thrilled with the type of civil culture that we have. And the it does seem to be itself highly polarized. Yeah. 
and to left-hand progressive approaches and right-hand traditional conservative approaches. And they both uh, tend to be presented in extreme ways. Yeah. As if the only members of, of both of those parties are extremists. I know. And it's just really disappointing in general. Um, so this is what America needs integral theory now proud. more than ever. <laughs> um, and I'm not proud of what we call society <sighs> right now. Yeah, me neither. Me neither, brother. Well, in some ways, and I have to be very careful with, with what I'm saying now, but in some ways, some aspects of our social engagement seems to have actually regressed a bit. Certainly, when we hit the 60s, there was a fair amount of increase in our interest in spiritual experience. Mm. So there were things like Kerouac and Dharma bums and Zen yeah. and Satori experiences. And, and in large measure, that was probably because of the psychedelic influx that began mm. in the late 50s and throughout the 60s. And people would have psychedelic unity experiences yes and that's what kerouac was writing about and that's what a lot of human potential organizations were talking about and they weren't necessarily recommending psychedelics but they were talking about the psychedelic sort of unity experience and that was that sort of had an impact on our society at large. And so we sort of went through our Zen period uh, in our social awareness. And as those seem to die down along with the psychedelic experience. And we seem to lose interest in both of those at about the same time. Mm. And I'm not sure why, except it could be a causal. It could be that psychedelics induce Satori-like experiences. And as long as psychedelics are sort of a crash hit in our culture, then a psychedelic-type Satori experience is going to be fairly common and talked about and referred to. But as we just sort of got over psychedelics, we also got over the Zen Satori. But there seems to be a, re a renaissance in scientific understanding of the benefits of psychedelics. Don't you see a new resonant, uh, renaissance of psychedelic interest right, right now? Not a huge amount. Really? Uh, like Michael I mean, Pollan's I'm... documentary and book, and it seems to have brought a, brought a lot of interest. and. Uh, and Roland Griffith's research. Well, that's true. Um, well, that research is there, yeah. and so that's important. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad they've done it. 
that's really in- important. But I'm just not sure how much awareness the average public has of that type of experience or research. I don't see a great deal of it okay. myself. There does seem but to be a have to be wrong yeah. about that. Yeah. I, I don't know the precise I don't know where we're really at. I just know that maybe it could be the certain circles I swim in <laughs> as opposed to society at large. It could just be that all I hear about is psychedelics and in, in the in my field right now. But don't don't you think there's a great paradox that we're so focused on diversity and yet we couldn't be more polarized. I mean, does it, can, can we just be honest for a second? I know. I know. Um, and I think it's because there is that very real diversity hmm. going on that that is what infects our social awareness. Hmm. And so we're not really specifically aware of the actual research on diversity of multiple intelligences and ideas and so on. But we just, we do come from a diverse perspective. Well, we're focusing on racial and gender diversity and not things that are more skin deep, like perceptual diversity, neurodiversity, biodiversity. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, and one of the reasons seems to be that when we talk about diversity, it largely is either a racial diversity or a gender. Right. Diversity. And these are the uh, things that we immediately see that are different between people. We see if a person's black or white. We see if they're a boy or a girl. Right. And so even without recognizing it, when we talk about diversity, we're really reducing human beings to their simplest perceptual differences. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree, but it's you know controversial to say that to some people. Well, yeah, I, I suppose it is. <laughs> but I agree. I mean, I, I, I think that if people really, truly understood your writings, and and it came from which, by the way, I've read a lot of your writings, so I, I really have deep respect. And and this whole conversation today, I hope you feel it comes from a place of deep respect. Uh, it just seems to me, you're welcome. It seems to me like if people really understood what you were trying to say, and we had a society that revolved around it, we would all come from a spirit of, huh? I may disagree with you, but maybe there's some truth to what you're saying that I can incorporate into my truth. But we right. don't, no one thinks like that <laughs> these days. That's right. And so we're not very diverse in our actual viewpoints. No, no. And yet, even to talk about that is not allowable. No, no. General. It's not a, rec- a recognized good thing. No. No, it's because it's either or thinking, right? It's like yeah. not like oh, we can we can absolutely have racial diversity, we can absolutely have gender diversity, and we can have viewpoint diversity. I mean, right. we can have all these. Like, why 
But yeah, people think of it as uh, you either can pick one piece of the pot or the other. That's so antithetical to integral thinking. Right. So antithetical. In the couple minutes we have left, can I ask you some reader questions from uh, sure. Twitter, Twitter, Twitter questions? What are the ways in which you think research psychology could improve and is off track? We talked a little bit about that earlier. I don't know if you have anything further to say about that. The way modern day research psychology could improve and is off track. Right. Well, again, um, you sort of, you mentioned that the field you were involved with was full of psychedelic mm. awareness. But uh, other than those sort of one or two references you gave, I'm not aware of a great deal of research on the psychedelic experience. Now, I know some fundamental research has been done. I think even a team at Princeton. And in London. Yeah. On psychedelics tended to have psychedelic unifying experiences. Mm. And that got a fair amount of wide acceptance. But I haven't seen a series of specific testing in a large uh, degree of the type of psychedelic experiences or alternate experiential awareness that's able to be generated from different types of drugs. Hmm. I'll send you my podcast chat with Roland Griffiths because he, there's some really exciting work coming out on that right oh, now. That's great to hear. Mm. Um, well, that's one thing I would like to see from yeah. psychology. Um, yeah. And so who did you say your conversation was with? Uh, Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. They're really leading the way. They're really leading, yeah. leading the way in, in understanding well, that's this. That's fantastic. I think I don't really understand why developmental research has dropped off as much as it has. Yeah, good point. So I would like to see some response to that situation. Um, the, in terms of the introduction of new developmental models or developmental models with a new set of data or a new set of experiential understanding. I can only, I'm really only aware of one or two major new introductions to developmental theory that have been offered recently. And that includes some of the work done by Jane Lovinger when she produced her like nine, eight or nine stages of development she came up with a written test, sometimes just to fill in, my mother is fill in the blank, or yeah. I am fill in the blank. But she would get responses that clearly fell into about eight or nine different classes. Mm. And those classes tended to come one after the other in the stage-like fashion. But her developmental model and its test is now the most widely used psychological test worldwide. Mm. So that's great. But that was, she developed that some 50, 
20 years. Yeah, even longer than that, even as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then Robert Keegan from Harvard has produced his five broad conceptual realms Mm. of broad states of consciousness. And that's relatively new, but it's also relatively simple. Five mm. states. Um, but um, I like Keegan and I like his work and I know him because he's particularly connected with my work. And so we've had a lot of discussions about that. Um, mm. That's amazing. Mm. Um, yeah, no, he's he's awesome. Well, okay. Do you think life is just a test run? Well, in a certain sense, depending upon what you think the your overall states of consciousness map is like, and the idea that when we die, we all go to some higher state of whatever variety it is. If that's true, then the stages of waking life that we go through would just be a sort of test run for the final afterlife great advance in awareness that we're going to experience or go through. Well, I don't know that that's true. Uh, There is (laughs) in my theoretical model. Mm. And I would expect that if we went on in some way, we would be, in effect, growing upon what had come before. Mm. Makes a certain amount of sense. And then apparently when we're reborn, we ditch all of that and go back to stage one. But someplace in our awareness is an understanding of what we have to do to get to stage two and stage three and stage four. Um, because there's no doubt that human beings grow and develop and we can spot certain broad stages to that growth and development. Mm. So it appears to be very real. Mm. And then when developmental psychologists started in the 40s and 50s actually measuring this amount of growth and development. And they would notice these seemingly stage-like aspects to it. Then we got all these models of development. Mm. And there were, as I say today, there are like a hundred different developmental models Mm -hmm. in existence. Mm. And there are at least some 15 to 20 that are fairly well known. And if you take a class in developmental psychology, you'll get exposed to about a dozen different developmental maps of awareness. And they're presented with a great deal of authority. Like these are really real. I know. And they really exist. And here's the experimental data that measures each stage of development I so know. we have real experiential evidence or scientific data on this stuff so that's all fine and how that so 
the fact that that likely, if consciousness goes on in any degree in an afterlife, I have no doubt that development will continue. Right. Because that's what consciousness does. It, we learn from our mistakes and from our successes. Right. A, a lot of what we do now is based on what we did yesterday. Right. And so that can, I mean, if there is an afterlife, I'm sure it'll be a developmental concern. And we can spot growing up in our degrees of Christ consciousness or whatever the hell we're actually introduced to. <laughs> whatever the but, hell. <laughs> Hopefully it's not hell <laughs> that we end up in. In you in some yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Whew, that's I know that was a deep question. Uh, let's let's go a little bit lighter. I haven't heard I haven't heard his takes on the social media landscape, platform culture, big data, big tech, et cetera. I'd love to hear his prognosis in that regard. How would an integral social media be like? Well, I think one of the first and interesting things that would happen as a large number of people started to discuss like the developmental component of our awareness, mm. that they would, of course, look at all the various models that were available and discuss their pluses and minuses. But I think one of the most interesting things they would get into is how can we personally increase our stage of development? And what can we do to talk about it or help in that fashion? Or does that help at all, mm. just talking about it? But I'm sure that would be an area that we would look into because it would be a bunch of people, a bunch of second-person views brought together into a, a large third-person social environment. And they would naturally be talking about all these things. And so it would be very curious to see what developmental capacities emerged from that. It would. It would. I mean, just social media seems so polar, like set up to polarize us as much as possible. Right. Yeah. yeah mostly what you get on social media today, first of all, isn't social. Mm. it's very nasty spirited mm. and very aggressive and very anti this and anti that. I mean, it's very easy to get a certain type of argumentative spirit going. Yeah. yeah. That's not terrific. And when you do look at any of the positive things that are happening, they're happening to a very small degree and in a very small percentage of the overall population of social environmental situation. And I'm not sure why degree or level of our conscious discussion isn't higher than it appears to be, hmm. because it doesn't appear to be that high and i don't know what your experience of social media is like <laughs> very low but, levels of of uh 
of stage uh, of development there. <laughs> I would agree with that. Yeah. And I, but I, no, I no reason why it's so low. It jumps yeah. in line. There's it, no reason. No, uh, my colleague Courtney Bigany is trying to to spearhead a whole new field, positive uh, product design, you know, pro- positive uses of social media and stuff. But um, there's some there's something in humans that really gets excited by the muck, the the controversy, the, the there's something more exciting about that in a way than uh, yeah. than. I mean, I'm not saying to me and you because we're at such a high level. <laughs> no, I'm joking, but um, you know, <laughs> but I'm saying I think there's something in in humans that that really uh, entertainment. You know, there's a lot of entertainment value. Yeah, yeah, I th- I think that's probably close to the specific. Mm. Um, and Oof. you know, God bless our spirit, but it does yeah. seem to be rather yeah. unremarkable. Unremarkable. Okay, here. This is a whopper doozy question. Please take this uh, uh, with uh, with. Uh, don't get mad at me for asking it. Some readers have characterized your work as both a new age pastiche for smart people and idealist religious apologetics, including gussied up creation science and claims of transcendent divinity. How <laughs> holy shit! How have you thought about and addressed these critiques over time? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can just start with the whole creation issue. Mm. Um, and one thing is certain about evolution, and that is that Darwin does not cover all of the issue. Mm. There's a what to evolution, and there's a how to evolution, and there's a why to mm. evolution. And Darwin got started pretty good on the how, how. of evolution. Not the and why. The, mm-hmm. But as to the why, yeah. that natural selection mm. in spontaneous mutation is just not going to cut it. Mm. It is so inadequate. I mean, some of the calculations have been done showing that the overall number of mutations that would be required in order to produce not only just a living being, but a horse or a deer or a human being would take like, it's, it's somewhere over three volumes of 500 pages each Interesting. in a set of Encyclopedia Britannica. So three sets of hmm. Encyclopedia Britannica to even get close to the amount. I mean, it's something like 1 to the 10, 40 zeros. Mm. It's some um, huge, staggering amount like that. And so they're clearly, and most evolutionary biologists now seem to acknowledge this. You'll see a lot of YouTube presentations on why evolution is occurring and what is forcing that dramatic increase in the diversity of option and i happen to agree with that and so you sometimes it, that i'm tagged with creation science or something along that line and all that it's doing is pointing out 
that there has to be some sort of drive or force or desire or something that's driving this why of evolution. Because to go from a simple bacteria to a deer, it, it just takes an enormous amount of mutations and the natural selection, which is supposed to be the selective force, but that's just natural selection is just talking about whether an organism manages to pass on its DNA. And the claim is that, well, the stronger, the fitter, the better of all, the more likely that it'll carry on. But that doesn't say much. That's not telling us very much. Survival um, of the fittest. Yeah, the survival of the fittest myth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hear you, um, and I feel like uh, we should table that ev that uh, directionality of evolution, or, as well as the universe, because uh, I have great conversations with some of my scientist friends about there does seem to be some sort of directionality of the universe, and uh, that's that's fascinating. I mean, it holy is. cow, there's so much we don't know. Look, I'm having this chat with you right now, and uh, I'm finding you to be quite... Uh, open-minded, modest. I think there might be some misconceptions about you because I, there, someone else asked this. They said, some people have said you have an inability to deal with criticism. What do you think of that criticism? <laughs> they try to catch you in a catch-22 there. <laughs> well, to hell with that. Um, I don't think so. I think because I've written on so many topics yeah. and they're general amount a great deal of general uh critique mm. i accept most of it mm. at the, but when i see a, a clear misrepresentation or what i consider a clear mistake i'll try to point it out just because i'm trying to move the conversation in an adequate direction yeah. uh, not because i'm trying to prove ken wilbur is yeah. this or ken wilbur is that yeah. um but I, I get that criticism as well. Yeah. Oh, he's hypersensitive, and he's because he's got. You're it not. All. You're not presenting yourself as that today. I, I can say. Well, I hope not. <laughs> you're not. Um, yeah. But that, I mean, I understand why some people would think that. If yeah. nothing else, I've just written so much. Yeah. I mean, some thirty odd books is, um, and they've been widely translated. Um, <laughs> that's an understatement. Hold on, that's an understatement. You've written a lot. Yeah. You've yeah. written a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many people have written more <laughs> words that have been published right. than you. Let's be honest. Holy shit! Uh, a couple more short questions, and and then uh, I'll set you free. <laughs> this has been a real stimulating conversation for me. Does in a, this one's? I'm super interested. Your 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 thoughts about this. Does an objective reality exist or is it all superpositions? Because you do focus a lot on superpositions. You do focus a lot on um, uh, on there being a grain of truth to all kinds of perspectives. Uh, what do you think about objective truth? Well, I think there is such a thing as an objective world. Hmm. But I do happen to believe that that objective world itself has authentic subjective features. Hmm. 
that the four quadrants, in other words, are exist everywhere. Hmm. And that we have an upper left and an upper right and a lower left and a lower right at all levels of evolution, hmm. including simple bacteria. I think they come with an individual subjective awareness and they're aware of an actual objective something or other. And they come together and form collectives in the lower quadrants. And those collectives have an interior consciousness and an exterior awareness. Hmm. So there is subject and object and intersubjective and interobjective all the way up and all the way down. And I believe that. And so I don't have any trouble when, and there are, of course, various forces operating in all of them. So I don't have any trouble when I watch all of these evolutionary programs on YouTube and they're talking about the extraordinary mm. mutational rate and natural selection of these hundreds of thousands of mutation selected processes and they are all describing something that happens in an objective world mm. and i believe that objective world is real That's i don't cool. believe it exists apart from subjective mm. reality as I say, subjective realities go all the way down. Mm. And that's true in the creation of the universe and the creation of life in that universe. Mm. So I don't have any trouble watching those kind of YouTube presentations. It makes sense to me. So there's a real objective world but then how each subjective creature interprets that world varies yeah and that's true for human beings the way that's you true. and i are interpreting this conversation has significant important differences yeah and the incredible thing about human perspectives is we can talk about those differences in the way we see things. So we, can, we have a perception of our perceptual differences. And that's great. But all of those are available to us in, this, in these quadrants mm. that are subjective and objective and intersubjective and interobjective. And all of those realities are very real. Look, um, this is so important because you're basically saying that, look, none of us has the whole truth and that, we need each other and we need, uh, there's a great, there's, oh, there's ultimately a great modesty there, isn't there? You know? Well, I, I suppose so, but <laughs> it's definitely true that the first part that you yeah. say, yeah. I mean, you really do need each other. Yeah. And yeah, that's the whole point of science is you have to reproduce what you claim is the truth. If it's true, do it again. Let's see. And 
thank God we've got a whole lot of people that are doing that. So we're getting vaccines for different sorts of diseases, and we're getting finding moving towards cures for cancer. And all of those are because we're dealing with some of these very real realities. And we can test our approaches to them, and we can create things that will alter any of those quadrants, or any of those forms of awareness. Those are all real issues. Don't you agree that it requires a, a large amount of humility to um, uh, come, sure. come at the search for truth, knowing that you'll never uh, know the full thing? Yeah. Also, in its own strange way, it's a very attractive feature. When you meet somebody that has a large amount of humility, you're mm-hmm. generally attracted yeah. to their humility. I mean, it's a very beautiful thing, really. Great way to pick up chicks. I'm, yeah. joking, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, artificial intelligence, do you, do you think we'll get to a point where they will have different levels of consciousness? Like, we'll be like, sta- that, that computer's at stage two. <laughs> that computer's at stage four. Yeah. Green, That's, that computer's at green level. <laughs> I don't say that there would be any problem. I mean, what a lot of programmers are doing now is they just sort of leave the computer alone mm. and start tracking its own life and start making up its own programming mm. to do different things. And the researchers can just watch this happen. They don't step in and tell the computer what to do. Right. So it's paying attention these computers that we're discussing are paying attention to their past. Mm. And because of that, they're altering their present. Mm. And that's a sense of growth. That's a type of growth. And depending on whether we're going to start tracking the degree of complexity Mm. that computer brings to the present situation and we see those complexities grow and we follow the ways that they grow and find that there are certain similarities in them then that would start to indicate a certain type of stage like development of this Mm. very complex computer awareness Mm. and that wouldn't surprise me if something like that started to happen, um, mm. I don't know. I mean, other than the fact that we do have computers that, in, in the sense, grow and develop their own programming and create those kinds of stages, if you will, that's already been demonstrated. I mean, these computers do create their own programming and go through it. Yeah. And they can be more complex and go through that. Nobody's gotten onto a stage conception of what these computers are I know. doing. That's why and I asked I asked you, yeah. In large measure, that's because psychology itself continues to sort of ignore the issue. And we've talked about why this is, and the answer is I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm very disappointed 
did it. And very happy to see when somebody like Keegan or Lovinger comes out with another model of what's going on. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, that's just, as we talked about, maybe psychedelics are everywhere you look, but stages of psychedelic growth and development are not everywhere. Mm. So that still tends to be not totally ignored, but it's not a great rush of of research and awareness on that type of reality. Well, I agree. I agree. I'm just so curious the future when we when we integrate uh, mind um, with machine, we meld all these things together and and we try to upload our consciousness to eternity, and, and we're taking psychedelics while we're in that state of consciousness. Oh my gosh, it'll be. I, I, if there was an, a real online, we were talking about what would they work on. Mm, yeah, that question would clearly be one of the central issues yeah that i think would draw a lot of people to i agree i'll ask you one last question today uh i i find it fascinating by the way your early life and your you were a prodigy in school i believe and i've studied prodigies i mean that's something that's part of my research so i'm interested in that um yeah. where do you see your and and i also want to acknowledge uh, uh you know you've gone through a lot of suffering in your life i mean you've had some really significant losses and you've grown from them and you you've you have a movie you know about the loss of your wife and it was like yeah. if you don't if someone doesn't cry in that mo- by watching that movie they're not human in my in my view so you've had such a remar- remarkable life so far i mean not over yet <laughs> you've had a remarkable life so far where do you this is my question where do you see your consciousness as it is right now how would you classify it right now and then is there any room for growth anymore is, is this is my final question for you, do you is there anywhere for your consciousness can you still do better <laughs> right well i can definitely do better in the degree of waking up now i i find this sort of curious because i've been studying and practicing various types of waking up, particularly Zen Buddhism, Mm. since I was 18, 17, 18 years old. I know. And I've had several Satori experiences and have gotten transmitted, but I still don't feel that I'm at the top of the heap. Wow. It it just doesn't seem to be that feeling Mm. in a waking up. Like when you first wake up, you're aware, oh, I've gone from being asleep to I'm really waking now. And you can be, you're aware of that transition. But you don't walk around for days afterwards thinking, wow, I'm at the top of this pile of levels of development. I'm right (laughs) up. And it feels good. It just doesn't. It doesn't appear to you that way. You can't really feel stages of growth and development. Although you can sort of feel your expansion when you move to a higher state. But it never you never get to a point where you say I'm there. Hmm. I've arrived. Good. And That's good. I don't even know any awakened Zen masters that feel that. 
And I've talked to several of them, and I know several of them. They're personal friends. Mm. And I just, I never gotten that sense. Mm. And when I've talked with them about it, they've all denied that anything like that goes on. Um, And I think that's true. Mm. So all I can say is I'm quite advanced in waking up certain experiential aspects of that. Um, and I don't mind saying that it doesn't feel non-humble or something. I know, I know. <laughs> but I'm not claiming that I'm totally enlightened or anything like that. And yeah. again, I don't know anybody who does. But um, and on the um, growing up scale, I'm somewhere in third tier. And I mean, I had um, gone through. Lovinger's first tier and second tier of development by the time I was a teenager. Mm. And so um, that's just based on tests that I have taken. Yeah. And so are there any stages higher in Lovinger scale? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's also something that almost anybody that you talk to who seems fairly developed, if you ask them, do you feel you you yourself are as far up as you can go up? And I don't know very many people that have that experience, even if they are really highly developed. I, I just don't hear many of them saying, oh, yeah, I'm at the top of the scale. You can't get me higher than where I'm at. Because they personally know it's not true. They know if they look within that they can still go higher. (laughs) So Uh, I think that outside of the handful of models that have actual tests for their stages of growing up, and there are at least a dozen very good tests, the Piaget's test, the Lovinger's test, the Keegan, yeah. so on. And you can measure where you are in that growing up scale. And to the extent that they have a highest scale, like Lovinger has a turquoise, second tier, fully integrated stage mm. of development, you can measure that. But notice that the percentage of the people in the population that are at Jane Levenger's highest stage is 0.5%. That's not a lot of people. No, no it's not. Stage. Wow. So, uh, did you actually take some of these tests when you were a teenager? Sure. Wow. Well, yeah. no, you said sure, and most teenagers are not. Well, t- but I, by the way, I love taking these kinds of tests when I was a teenager too. So okay. I bond. Yeah, I, bond I guess I gotten so much into developmental study yeah. that I um, would look up if they had any tests gotcha. and liberally. I took of all these IQ tests as a teenager and only yeah. saved the ones that made me look good. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah. But. Um, 0.5% of the population is not great. Whereas the percentage of the population at green, yeah, green. which is the first tier and is the basis of most postmodern 
approaches. That's about 25, 26, 27% of the population. Yeah, you argue. Scale. So, I mean, she's actually measured the general population. That's what she finds. So that does a lot to show us why postmodern, multicultural, pluralistic, relativistic approaches are so common where truly integrative approaches are not very, 0.5% is not a lot of the population. It must be lonely (laughs) being there and seeing and seeing being frustrated with what you see around you with your fellow humans right well you sort of um i guess if you're actually at that 0.5 percent what if you're there do is adapt to being Mm. at only 0.5 percent of the population Mm. and so you'll notice that it's hard to find like a deep friendship with somebody who you can feel heart to heart with. It's not a big deal. I mean, because you're stuck with it. So what are you going to do? Maslow talked about this. Maslow talked about this in his book uh, about transcenders, transcenders, he called them. And he said that there's a, he said, transcenders have a bit of, have a cosmic sadness toward their fellow humans. Right, that they see the greater potential in them. Right. I always thought that was beautiful. I always thought that was yeah, beautiful. well, that is a, a great part of a higher stage of development. Mm-hmm. Oh, Ken, thank you so much for chatting with me today and for the uh, legendary work you've done in your career. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate today's conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
Com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.